I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the pub. Welcome to the Mary Rose, our virtual pub, where we uh, we originally started off having these really um, intense historical debates and being all educated, and now we've just resorted to knob gags and taking the piss out of each other. But the more we do that, the more people seem to download them, so I'm not going to change or grow up or be any less juvenile as a result. Um, We've got some regulars in tonight, and we've also got a couple of newcomers as well, so let me go around the virtual room. James, our barflies here. Hey, James. Hey, you're Alex. I've forgotten where you actually live now because I only ever see you on here. You're in the Midlands somewhere, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a Brummie. So. A Brummie, as if we couldn't tell by your accent. Kate's here. Um, so we have two Kates in tonight. So why no Kate's back? Hey, Kate. Hi. She's Hello. in Spain, obviously. Um, she, she bought the unstoppable force that was Napoleon's removed penis to the debate last week. Uh, <laughs> Andy's back in Dublin as well. Have you been in hiding from people from Cork? Have you had any like, lashback from that? Uh, no, not yet. So, I'm I just here. your face just says you're not really bothered if they do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if they can find me. <laughs> Brilliant. We've also got John Jordan's with us in Georgia. Hey, John. Hey, Alex. How are you guys? I'm good. I feel bad for you because of the time difference. You've got to do a bit of adulting later on, haven't you? So, hey, look, maybe not get totally wankered this time. I, I'm all yeah. I'm all set. We'll see. He's still it's, got two uh, bottles I'm just alongside try- him. I, I'm just trying to get over general anxiety from this uh, esteemed group. So I may need a few more drinks. Absolutely. Whatever excuse uh, you need. Kate Jameson's in the house and she's drinking wine out of a mug because she's that hardcore. Hey, Kate. Hi. (laughs) How are you doing? You're down on the South Coast, aren't you? I am indeed, just outside Southampton. Excellent. And we also were really excited today because uh, Jamie Goodall's here and I think she's in Maryland. Is that right? Correct. Awesome. So she's brought pirates. Who's not excited at the thought Yay. of pirates? Um, so we're going to debate today. Oh, and Alina's here as well. I forgot again. Alina? Forget me every time. Well, it's because you're antisocial and you've got your camera off. I do. I do. But for very good reason. To be fair, you do look like shit today. Uh, we've got our two judges in the house. We have uh, the not-so-honourable Andrew Holmes. Hey, Holmes. Evening. I mean, Just discussing what, how many pork scratchings have disappeared from behind you since last week. 16 packets. I know that without looking. Really? Is yeah. that because, are you monitoring how many your wife and child can shoot? <laughs> yeah. They've got to last till Saturday till the bacon fries turn up. And how many, do, do you actually police how many the wife and child eat? Well, indirectly. <laughs> indirectly by slapping their hands if they yeah, go anywhere it. near them. And Johnny dies in the house. Hey Johnny. He's just eating salmon and lentils for tea. Yep, 
because I'm middle class. <laughs> He's middle class. And proud. And proud. So we are today going to debate uh, history's most incompetent leader because we had so much fun um, doing last week's so much fun oh that was it what was it the most hilarious moment in history we had so much fun trashing historical people and laughing at their unfortunate deaths that we thought we'd do something similar this week um so we're just going to laugh at history's biggest bellends basically for the next hour and a bit um so let's get james is going to be a gentleman and go first because kate why no kate has not yet consumed enough wine um to be brave <laughs> enough to go in with her choice so james is going to go are you on tea or cider or both this week james uh i'm currently on cider a new one pineapple and raspberry <laughs> so it's like That's, drinking a fruit salad you've just got above johnny yeah. in the middle class states there um <laughs> but i i'm looking forward to this because last week you had a cider and a half and ended up doing impressions of a parrot <laughs> um which was quite fun for the rest of us so you've picked for your incompetent leader you've gone for wenceslas the fourth tell us about yes. him and why um wenceslas the fourth of bohemia also known as wenceslas the idol so incompetent i'm having to completely do it in segments so to do background he was born in 1361 he was the son of charles the fourth who then crowned him king of bohemia at age two then the margravate of brandenburg about 1373 and then voted him king of the romans the holy roman emperor eventually in 1376. So Charles IV was setting up his dynasty. So he had him, Sigismund, as the king of Hungary, um, Margrave Jobst. So basically setting it all up so his son would have a smooth rule. 1378, Charles dies, and Wenceslas takes control. Immediately, he has issues with the Swabian League who have basically were angry at Charles and Wenceslas were trying to take their power. So he keeps doing uh, diets or diets every year to try and resolve the issue, thinking he's a great peacemaker, and he's not. And then in 1387, the Swabians declare war, and they end up getting their asses handed to them by the Count of Württemberg. And then Wenceslas slides in and basically says... Okay, you can no longer form a league, but you can keep all your power. You can still be autonomous, blah, blah, blah. Basically letting them off lightly at this point, by which time they're already destroyed. So he calls himself a big peacemaker, but really he done jackal. And then we're focusing on Germany. He's still having issues. He basically leaves Germany from 1389 to its own devices. And the Germans get pretty pissed off at him for various reasons, which I'll touch on later because I'm having to break in this into segments. But basically, by 1397, he comes back because they're pissed off at him at this point. He basically ignores them, goes back to Bohemia. So by 1400, the Rhine electorates basically call him up on charges and basically say, hey, you're fucking up, you're not doing your job. Uh, you've pissed off the Pope because he'd still not got coronated by the Pope for being Holy Roman Emperor, which obviously pissed the Pope off to no end. And basically they call him up on the charges and he basically claims that there's trouble in Bohemia at this point, which there isn't. Um, he was basically just drinking, whoring, doing what he wanted. So they dethrone him on the 20th of August, 1400 and elect Rupert to be King of the Germans, King of the Romans. 
And we'll go back to why that is total incompetence on Wenceslas's part, because he doesn't recognise him whatsoever, but does nothing to stop him. To be Bohemia, fair, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, acknowledge King Rupert either, because it sounds shit, but continue. <laughs> yeah, so going in Bohemia, and he actually rules Bohemia worse than Germany. So in 1393, he basically involved in the murder of... Of, oh god what's his name now i'm looking for it <coughs> ah yeah john of nepomunk who was the general of his of this priest so the investment of the abbot of cladraby i think it's pronounced the czechs are going to kill me for this but um so basically he has a noble rebellion he's captured by his cousins jobst of moravia and prokop among others the Germans have to get involved to get him out of it. 1396, Sigismund comes from Hungary to basically get him released. He has to sign some powers over to Jobst and the League of Lords, but basically it sort of resolves himself. Then after 1400, around 1402, he, Sigismund gets fed up of him not of Wenceslas not being crowned. So he basically says to Wenceslas, hey, you need to be crowned Holy Roman Emperor. Um, Wenceslas agrees, and then he turns, and then he basically refuses, so Sigismund has to take him prisoner to try and force him to go to get crowned as Holy Roman Emperor. Um, so he's captured and basically loses all of his power. He had to be rescued by John of Liechtenstein while Jobst is fighting Sigismund. So there's about 13 knights, and they have to escort him. So by this time, he loses all his power, and it just causes a clusterfuck. By 1409, he pisses off people even more, because, yeah, Bohemia's wrecked at this point. Sigismund came in and basically kicked everyone's asses because Wenceslas played favourites, and he put people in powerful positions who weren't very strong as in they didn't have enough men to defend it. So Kutnohovra or Kuttenberg got completely ransacked when Sigismund came in and took the royal treasury. <clears throat> um, Silver Scallets got completely destroyed and the king's royal hetman had to flee. Uh, so Radzig Kobila. So it got everything pissed off at this point. Then we get on to the papal schism. Now, he was a big supporter of Urban IV, and he met with Charles VI of France, it's possibly around 1397, we're having to go back in time here, to try and solve the papal schism of two popes at this point. And he basically abandons Boniface IX, which pisses off the German nobility, the Bohemian nobility, basically partly what leads to 1400 and Rupert coming to power. Because then Rupert makes an anti-pope in 1409, I think it's the Council of Naples. So basically, there's now three popes. Around this time as well, Wenceslas supported Jan Hus and the reformations of the Hussites. Big fan of it. All his nobles and stuff supported the Hussites. It became this big thing, big religion and movement in Bohemia. But then around 1414, Sigismund calls the Council of Constance where basically he was going to resolve the papal schism, uh, schism, schism, my pronunciation is terrible, but so the council took the power and then they could dethrone the three popes. In 1415, though, 
part of this means they're going to burn Jan Hus for heresy. And Wenceslas, at this point, still wanted to be Holy Roman Emperor. And that was a problem because Rupert had died, Jobst had claimed it and been crowned, and also Sigismund had been crowned. So Wenceslas still wants to be Holy Roman Emperor still, even though he's not at this point, for whatever reason. So he doesn't stop them executing Jan Hus for heresy. Now this caused a lot of people to be pissed off, commoners and nobles alike, and just caused a lot of havoc. Because going from a big supporter of it, he then turns around and tries to suppress it and completely fails for the next, I think it's four years. And then you have the defenestration of Prague in 1419. And we think it's the news of this that killed him when he was out hunting from a heart attack. Because he basically did fuck all still. And you think, oh God, great. He's dead. His incompetence is over. Oh no. No, no, far from it. Because 1419, Sigismund obviously becomes king of Bohemia as well, as the Holy Roman Emperor. He comes in, he sees all these Hussites around, and Hussite supporters, even though he'd done everything to solve the Papal Schism, and basically tried to restore Catholics. So then you have the Hussite Wars, which went on for 1419 to 1433, up to 1436 completely destroyed Bohemia, wrecked it completely. We don't know the casualty numbers. That's how bad it was. It just completely wrecks it. Um, and also there was the Bishopic of Würzburg in the German side. It was left in such a state. People were still improvised in that state up to 1476. It was that badly destroyed. So Wenceslas wasn't just incompetent in his lifetime. It was the stuff he did in these, his lifetime which then caused such a war, it just devastated a good part of Eastern Europe. And it's, yeah, this guy's just so incompetent. He was drunk. He couldn't even have an heir. He had two wives. He let one wife accidentally killed by one of his deer hounds, which is supported to some extent by sources, but some say it's a myth. And yeah, he just didn't have an heir at all even though he was whoring, drinking, and doing whatever he wanted for all of his rank. So, yeah, Wenceslas is the idol. Just, I can't even say it. He's just so incompetent. He is a monumental bellend, by the sounds of it. Uh, Dyer, any questions? I'll unmute myself first, that might help. Um, I, I, I was trying to sort of kind of draw out a map of, of all the, the involved parties, um, and I got about half a page in and some blood started coming out of my ear. Um, it's, um, it's, 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 it sounds like rather a, a complex period of history anyway and it, it's on, on first hearing it's difficult to ascertain as to whether it was generally generally chaotic anyway and as to how so, much he contributed to the chaos oh he did because he just didn't rule at all i mean yes his brother had power in hungary yes his cousins jobst and prokop had power where they are but that's the power his father put in place, so he had the tools to rule. He just didn't bother to rule, which obviously pissed everyone off. And he'd support one person and then completely turn against them. There was a um, 1397, a load of his royal councillors get killed. We don't know by who, some say his family, some by order on the kings himself. 
And then suddenly they're all dead. These people had supported him all their life. And then he calls them all traitors and basically gives all their lands to other people. It's just mm. maddening. Um, it he seems to have had a unique talent for pissing everybody <laughs> off. Yeah. I mean, and even for his day, he was an alcoholic, like, and a drunk. I remember there was another example. He was meant to meet Charles VI in 1397, and he had to refuse at Reims, I think, because he was completely off his face, and he couldn't meet the, the King of France, basically. So, yeah. And his face I'm, is saying, I'm, I'm, no, so I don't think we can't judge him. I'm kind of awarding him kudos for that, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> that, that's, that, that goes goes fine for me. Um, yeah. No, thank you, James. Uh, that, that was grand. Holmes. Um, firstly, the, the papal schism, that sounds like an injury we should have discussed last week, doesn't it? Yes, let's go back to people's never regions again. But that, I mean, I mean, the papal schism itself—that wasn't down to him, was it? He was just basically ordered to pick a side at that point. Um, it wasn't down to him, no, because it had started before him. But he worsened it because he supposedly went to solve it with Charles the Sixth, and he basically abandoned the guy he supported, which obviously pissed off all the nobles, the cardinals in Germany and Bohemia because they supported this pope. And obviously, Wenceslas turning against him is basically like saying, oh, yeah, you're all effectively excommunicated. So, yeah, and then with him being dethroned, Rupert trying to solve it, and basically him losing his crown through incompetence led to a third pope being created. And Rupert was just trying to solve the issue. It was Wenceslas that just aggravates it all. And, yeah... (laughs) I think that I think there's a distinction to be made, and we might see it with some of the other candidates later on. But you know, he didn't seek this position out in the first place. He wasn't doing it for power or glory. It was just sort of thrust upon him. And by the sounds of it, he didn't do, you know, he did what kings of that time did. But unfortunately, the, the circumstances sort of went wrong for him. Whereas with others, sort of, they, they went a bit better. Mm. I, I can see your point there, but he had the tools to rule. He just didn't use them at all. <laughs> True. And then he's not. He's not the. Uh, the Wenceslas we know from the Christmas song, is he? That's another one. No, no, that is another one, yes. <laughs> James is like, no, no, he does not get a Christmas song. There's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, points, points off for that as well. Mm. So I just turned around and I've got a cat's bum hole in my face. It's <laughs> like live on camera for everybody in the boom chat. Are you all right there? It's an, it's an early opinion on the show. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks very much, James. Sorry, you were just... Com- no worries. Because this is us, you've been completely upstaged by my cat's crusty chocolate starfish. Um, <laughs> let's move on to the next one, swiftly. I'm going to go to Kate, because I, I love her choice. I'm going to go... This is Wino Kate. I'm going to go to Wino Kate next, because I absolutely love her choice. Thank you. Um, I figure that I've got a hard act to follow after last week's knob gags, so I chose Edward II, um, King of England. I forget the dates, sorry, we should have written that down. Um, So he's completely incompetent, completely useless, um, and I will tell you why. There is, however, some good that came from his rule, that which was the growth and development of Parliament. However, this good was only as a result of his complete ineptitude. (laughs) Is this because people forced him to have a Parliament because he was so shit? Basically, yeah. He Uh... was so that they said, you can't rule, and the nobles basically took over and gave all the power to Parliament. Um, 
because he was so rubbish. So um, when his father passes away and he becomes king, the first, more or less, the first two things he does are he calls um, Piers Gaveston back from France. Now, Piers Gaveston has been exiled to France by his father, by Edward II's father, um, because he had what his father considered to be a bad influence on Edward II. Um, the next thing he does is abandons the campaign that he was on. Um, his father had sent him on a campaign and he just completely abandons it and goes to London and gets hammered with Gaveston, I think, more or less. He does manage to continue to negotiate his marriage. So he is in negotiations with Philip Paul for marriage to Isabella. Um, this marriage is a really good thing because uh, it will kind of unite England and France, which is great. So he manages to negotiate the marriage by completely rolling over to all of Philip IV's requests, some of which are quite harsh. They're quite, you know, quite in terms of uh, he has to pay him an homage for certain lands and he, the, in terms of the dowry. So he rolls over to all of that and manages to secure the marriage, which he messes up really quickly um, due to his obsession with Piers Gaveston. Um, so at the coronation feast, he has his and Piers Gaveston's coats of arms displayed on the wall and not Isabella's, which is like really inconsiderate and really not the done thing. He also continues to ignore Isabella for the duration of the feast. Um, and he can't see why this would be a problem and why the nobles would be pissed off and why it would matter the nobles would be pissed off. Um, he also has to flee his coronation via the back door because some uh, eager spectators surge in and knock a wall down in Westminster Palace, apparently. Um, but he just doesn't. He just doesn't get why why his actions are, are a problem. Um, so eventually, some nobles get really fed up with this, and uh, including his cousin Lancaster, and they come to Parliament and to London and demand that he sends away Gaveston. He refuses and makes Gaveston Earl of Cornwall and arranges for him to marry a very wealthy woman instead. Um, for the following few years, Edward II and Piers Gaveston basically run the country into the ground. He has no financial aptitude. He inherited some debts from his father, but he just runs them up more and more and more. Um, so over the course of the next, I think it's 10, 12 years, something like that, Piers Gaveston is repeatedly sent away and called back and sent away and called back. Um, he's indecisive. The nobles demand that he sends him away because he's a bad influence. He, did not, he, he says he won't. Then he agrees to, um, and then he calls him back. And this kind of indecisive, weak sort of behaviour, I mean, he supposedly loves this man, it, it, whether it's as a lover, um, whether it's as a brother, whether it's as a friend, how, whatever, he loves him and he will do anything for him. But the minute the other nobles demand it, he sends him away. Um, he's just so weak. So... During all of this, on one occasion, he's, he agrees to send him away and then changes his mind and sends him to Dublin and makes him Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, um, which isn't part of the agreement. That wasn't, that wasn't the agreement. Um, the nobles by this time have written up these ordinances that basically strip Edward II of power. Um, and he agrees to them if they remove Clause 20, which exiles Gaveston. And they say no, and he once again agrees and sends him away. And then three months later, calls him back again and says he's overturning the ordinances. Now, he doesn't know how he's going to do this. 
He does know that if he calls Gaveston back, he will be executed. But he's just so selfish. He wants Gaveston with him. So he just called him back with no plan how he's going to achieve it. He just announces it and assumes it will happen. Um, this nearly causes civil war and also um, does end up causing uh, Gaveston's, Gaveston's execution. Um, at some point before he's executed, they do take an army because he's, Edward has more or less um, ignored Scotland, except for a couple of occasions when he's tried to sort of create a campaign and had to abandon it. Then he does, him and Gaveston do take an army to Scotland. Robert the Bruce basically just goes like, no, nah, I'm not going to fight you. They flirt around Scotland for a little while until they have to come back because they've run out of money and supplies. I mean, he's just really rubbish, isn't he? Really rubbish. <laughs> he's totally and rubbish. Eventually, he keeps sending him away and bringing him back and he eventually ends up getting executed because the ordinances say that if he comes back, he will be executed. So... Edward II says, I don't care, I want you to come back, brings him back, and he gets executed. Edward II blames Piers Gaveston for getting caught. Then he blames Lancaster for executing him, but at no point does he take any responsibility himself. At no point does he suggest that this might be his fault. It just doesn't come into it. Um, so anyway, while he's been having this lovely time spending all the money with Gaveston, he, like I say, he's pretty much neglected Scotland, except for this one useless attempt to take an army there. Eventually he has to march north to the Battle of Bannockburn, which we all know that he lost miserably. Um, he'd annoyed the nobles so much by this point that they don't turn up and bring their armies to support him. So his army is massacred and he's lucky to get out alive. Um, so at this point, because Lancaster didn't run to support him, he becomes even more obsessed with revenge on Lan Lancaster for the failure at the Battle of Bannockburn, for the death of Gaveston. So he's just revenge obsessed nothing else matters he's got no friends no allies nobody needs some new powerful mates enter the dispensers they restore his finances and gain his confidence he is a terrible judge of character the dispensers basically run around doing whatever they want they grab lands cause an imbalance of power and edward ii must see this but he doesn't do anything about it because he doesn't care as long as they are helping him get revenge he just lets them do whatever else they want. He can't think about anything other than getting Lancaster. So eventually... Um, yeah. yeah, go on. Carry on. Eventually, Hugh Dispenser grabs Roger Mortimer's land, and then Roger Mortimer leads an uprising, throws the Dispenser out of Wales, marches to London, and demands that Edward II banish the Dispensers. Edward II has got himself into a right predicament that his wife actually gets him out of by begging him to banish the Dispensers. So he is able to do so without losing face. However, this is yet again another noblest dictator of his action. After a while, he secretly brings the dispensers back and plots revenge. He's finally making a plan. Um, Isabella goes and gives him calls to start a fight at Peter Castle, and he goes around picking off his rivals. He gets proof Lancaster's colluding with the Scots, but instead of proving himself a just, strong king and giving him a fair trial that he knows he's going to win because he's got proof. He has a dodgy trial and executes him. He just can't see more than one day ahead. He's just more interested in revenge than being king. So then he decides to make the dispense to Chamberlain, basically giving them control of the country's finances and total control of the government, which, thanks to the ordinances, has control of the king. He just can't see it. Um, at this point, things with France are going south rapidly, and it ends up more or less in war. Or close to. Um, so rather than going and negotiating a treaty or whatever himself, he sends Isabella 
Um, sorry, before that, he lets Hugh Dispenser take all of Isabella's lands and their children and stands by and does nothing. Then he sends her to, um, to France to negotiate on his behalf. He's such a coward. The French king demands that he goes and signs a treaty, but he feigns an illness and sends his 12-year-old son. He's such a wimp, <laughs> such a coward. Um, so at some point during all of this, Roger Morton escaped from the tower where Edward locked him up. I mean, he can't even keep someone locked up in the tower. Um, it's pretty fail-safe, isn't it, once you've shot him in? You, you would think so, but no, Mortimer escapes. Isabella meets Mortimer, and they kind of get their thing on and go to England. By this time, Edward II is so hated by everybody, nobles, public, everybody, that Isabella and, and Mortimer get support and take country. Edward doesn't stand up and fight. He runs away, scared, and thinks that he might be able to talk her round. He still can't see the bigger picture. He thinks he's going to be able to talk to her and fix everything. So him and Hugh Spencer Jr. are captured. Hugh Spencer Sr. is already being beheaded, um, captured, he is then deposed and then murdered. There is the rumour of him being murdered by a hot poker, but hey, that's probably not true, but it's just a really good story, isn't it? And we it's more fun, like, yeah. Yeah, we quite like good stories, even if they're not true. So yeah, he's just uh, rubbish. You've yeah. missed his biggest transgression of all, which was to get his ass handed to him by Mel Gibson. <laughs> I don't watch Mel Gibson films. Good for you, but yeah, he does get his get his uh, ass handed to him by Mel Gibson, who I think in the film is it not implied that he's impregnated the Queen? I, I can't remember. Holmes, any questions? Yeah, I mean, firstly, you, you mentioned the wedding, which is fair enough, but what you didn't say were, was that his bride was twelve then. So if yeah, ever there yeah. was an argument for packing your bride off with a fruit shoot and hanging around with your mates, I think it's probably <laughs> then. <laughs> Yeah, but he shouldn't have married her if he wasn't going to, you know, I mean, he didn't even speak to her at the, the coronation speech. She was, as, as I understand, she was sat next to him and he didn't even acknowledge her presence. He didn't have her coat of arms on the wall. I mean, he was just so rude. I suppose, yeah, you, you go off and get pissed with your mates afterwards, but he could have at least chatted to her over the starters, no? Yeah. <laughs> Possibly. So true. Is, is it, could it not be the case, though, that... that the nobles were jealous of the, the influence that Piers Gaveston had. So um, there's an element of history being written by the victors here to say how bad and how then, the relationship was. Yeah, but then every time they they kind of said that he should send Gaveston away, he did. I mean, yeah, maybe they were jealous, but they kind of took control, didn't they? Through, through the government, through parliament. Well, they did, but then that forced, then forced him to turn to the dispensers. You know, it almost when I read about that earlier, it was almost like a like a mafia type thing. That he was almost desperate by the time he went to them, and they, it gave um, them power. Yeah, I think he was. But there again, you see, he just totally he he just yeah, he was desperate. But he went to them and let them control him he let them do whatever they wanted he was just so weak he was so cowardly and so pathetic that he couldn't even kind of control his subjects or his the nobles that, that were there were controlling him one or the other at, at any given time but then in, in terms of the consequences for his weakness there weren't any really significant <laughs> ones were there i mean obviously his wife um, and son ganged up on him but his son still became heir 
Yeah, but I mean, the country, the consequences to the country, to the public, were, were great, I think. I mean, um, there was famine and armed um, conflict throughout the country, throughout his reign. Um, he kept, until they um, stopped him through Parliament, he kept raising taxes um, time and again, I believe. Uh, so I think for the, for the people who he was supposed to be ruling over, the consequences were quite dire. Okay. Dire? Um, I mean, it just a, a sort of a set of headlines, um, getting whipped by the Scots, falling out with the French, um, just blowing lots of cash, falling in with the wrong crowd uh, you know, on, on a number of occasions. It's a pretty strong candidacy as far as I can see. Um, but he hung on to the throne for 20 years. So there's, there's an element that he must have done something right somewhere along the line. Yeah, but I don't think he hung on to the throne. I think perhaps Gaveston hung onto the throne for him and then the dispensers hung onto the throne for him because mm. the dispensers in particular really ruled the country, uh, albeit through him, but they probably couldn't actually take the throne because that would have been treason. But they used him as a puppet. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it sounded like it was sort of mutually beneficial, but it just, just rogues falling in together and, and it, it worked for both, both parties as far as I can see, obviously not knowing yeah. a huge amount about the subject. He probably would have lost the throne without the support of the expenses, mm. yeah. Sure. Okay. No, great. No, interesting character, definitely. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay, so going from Spain, Eurovision style, we're now going to Dublin. <laughs> Dublin, this is London calling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, thought, you thought James's were complicated. Here we fucking go. Okay. Right, this is Andrew bringing <laughs> us Irish mayhem, which I can't wait for. Right. Um, now... I suppose scene setting, I guess. Early medieval Ireland is pretty freaking complicated at the best of times. Um, and I know that there's going to be medievalist Irish historians that will end up tearing me apart for many oversimplifications. I'm going to use the wrong terms for kings or high kings, whatever. But also my Gaelga is quite rusty, so the pronunciation is going to be fairly shite too. So oh, gonna... screw it. We've all been drinking. Yeah. We don't care. I'm doing everyone proud here. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> The person I've chosen is a uh, Jermud McMurrah, um, also known as Jermud of the Foreigners. Um, and in terms of incompetency, his rule, for the most part, was fairly standard. But the end of his reign leads to what's often termed as the most catastrophic moment in Irish history. So in terms of legacy, you know, he's kind of important, I guess. Um, so he comes to the throne in 1126, and as I said, for the most part of his reign, and this is the throne of the Kingdom of Leinster, which is the area around Dublin-ish, um, not to the west, but north and south. Because uh, obviously ge geography couldn't possibly be simple, because that would be far too easy. Uh, he comes to the throne, it's a bit of a surprise, he doesn't expect to, uh, it's thrust upon him after his brother dies. Uh, and as I said, his, his, his rule for longest most early first 30 years or so was fine um he builds a number of churches generally speaking all goes to plan then comes the incident uh so there was a woman called and um, we're going to give this a go uh Durfugale. and Durfugale was the daughter of the kingdom of Meda or the king of Meda which is the county of Meath which is next to Dublin and the bit next to that which is West Meath nowadays and she was married to the king of Bravna, which is above that. So you've got kind of three kingdoms fairly close together, all sort of canoodling, I guess. And 
Bravenor was in decline and there were a lot of movements among the other Irish kings to sort of subserve them or to get them under their leash, so to speak. Uh, two of the biggest players were the King of Connacht and the King of some northern, what is now Ulster, that sort of area. These two kings get in touch with Dermot in Leinster and ask him, will you help our cause against uh, the King of Bravenor? And Dermot says, absolutely no problem. This is his first mistake. He has absolutely no reason to get involved in this conflict. All it's going to do is weaken his position, but he's lured into it with promises of, you know, classical riches, women, etc. And speaking of women, he kidnaps the daughter of the king, or the wife, sorry, of the king of Bravenor. Uh, this woman, Dervigel. Now, reasons for doing so. He has been described as having an insatiable carnal and adulterous lust. So maybe <laughs> that was something to do with it. Um, at the other end of the scale, the King of Bravena is described as being one-eyed, incredibly ugly and abusive. So who knows, maybe it was a rescue mission. Um, but I think this is probably less of a Helen of Troy situation and more of just a kidnapping situation. Yeah. Uh, so he kidnaps her. Um, and this is obviously quite frowned upon at the time. And what's worse is his two allies start losing this conflict. Uh, they end up dying about seven or so years after the fact. And what you have then is the King of Bravena, who's now in ascendance, allying himself with the High King of Ireland. So suddenly Dermot is public enemy number one because he stole his wife. So probably not the best decision-making process thus far. Then comes mistake number two he obviously he has to give the wife back uh that's not the mistake the mistake is when he's exiled from his kingdom he goes to england or wales and he starts having a chat with some of these new norman guys who've turned up fairly recently over there um including a man who becomes known as strongbow who is probably one of the least popular nobles in relationship with henry ii who's the king at the time but he builds up a bit of a relationship with Strongbow. They basically become pen pals. And he's completely unaware of any kind of background as to what's going on in England. So first of all, Henry II has been given permission by the Pope to reform the Irish Church. He just hasn't gotten around to it yet. But he's not aware of this at all, and he's not told this. He is also completely unaware of the last time a band of mercenaries were invited over to one of the English Isles and they just stayed there, which were the Saxons with Hengis and Horsa. So he doesn't really have the historiographical context <laughs> or the historic background rather at all. Uh, so he strikes up this friendship. He sails back to Ireland and he's, as I said, he's pen pals now with uh, Richard Fitzgilbert, who's Strongbow. And he invites Strongbow over. Strongbow brings a fairly strong Norman contingent over. And you know, they, they begin to fight for his kingdom. He's basically using them to get his kingdom back. Uh, unfortunately, the Normans decide they quite like Ireland. And Strongbow sends some letters going back and forth. And even more Normans turn up. And they attack the town of Waterford, which isn't in Dermot's kingdom. So now he's just been seen as this guy who's brought over these mercenaries who are now just attacking random towns in Ireland. It's no longer his own personal war. He's basically wrought the apocalypse. Um, now Henry II comes over 
because he's noticed what his barons or, or nobles or whatever the terms is, is up to. And he, he comes over, makes the kings of Ireland swear fealty to him, then he just sails back. He doesn't even have to draw his sword. And Norman Ireland is established. Dermot does get his kingship back, but as part of the agreement, he has to marry his daughter to Strongbow. Then his son dies. So I'm fairly sure he, you know, his legacy is fairly trolley at that point. One of his descendants does come back and reestablish the kingdom of Leinster, but that's much further down the line. Uh, Dermot himself gets his kingship back, but rules for a very brief period, eventually retreats into the wilderness and dies a fairly ignominious death. Um, so this comes the whole thing of his legacy. He is actively vilified for his incompetence when it comes to handling the Norman situation because he didn't keep them under control at all. He allowed them to basically attack whatever they wanted, made Ireland look really good for them, and they just stayed. Uh, so he's sort of the by, his name is the byword for opening the door to what's known as the 800 years of English oppression. Now that term is, le- is historically nonsense because obviously these were Normans and they kind of took a break halfway through as well, but it's a fun term that's thrown around, particularly at comedy gigs. Um, to put into perspective how much he is hated, there's a website called Irish Central, which is run by some incredibly jingoistic idiots in America who aren't Irish. They're Irish-American. Um, the difference is they're like homeopathic Irish because the concentration of Irish is really small, so it makes no difference. Um, but they still think it's good. Um, and they said about Dermot, they said he invited the English to Ireland in 1169 after losing the throne as King of Leinster. King Henry II took him up on it, and the Irish have been trying to get rid of the British ever since. So in terms of legacy, not he is great. a twat, isn't he? He's a bit of a twat. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he just, he's got a knack for just like, I, you're right, is it? he just does not see past the end of his own nose, does he? No, and this is because the, the, he, he's happy to marry his daughter off and ruin his own legacy as well. So there's, <laughs> there's no sense of forever after. It's just the immediacy of wanting his kingdom back. Some just people call serious, that <laughs> serious lack of cognitive reasoning going on yeah, there. Exactly. Dyer, any questions? Um, yeah, uh, uh, certainly an intriguing character. I, I, again, it feels like that there's sort of uh, an element of... of of the chaos of the times, um, which it certainly sounds like he, he contributed to. Um, I, I like the idea of just, just inviting the French home and going, right, okay, look, we've got this, we've got to get this done. And they decide that, well, actually, you know what? <laughs> I think this looks quite nice. I think we can, you know, we can, we can do a bit of raping and pillaging here. Um, so yeah, he doesn't sound like he's got a huge amount of control over anything he does. And, and that, that kind of is, is a characteristic of people who aren't thinking strategically or, or any great or deal. At all or at all into the future. It's just kind of what happens next. Um, yeah, I did, there's sort of no real questions. I, I'm sort of fascinated to do a bit more reading on him because uh, he sounds like a rather intriguing character. But, uh, but thank you. That was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, if, if I've learned anything over the 40-odd years, firstly, it's that women and Strongbow don't mix very well. And no <laughs> the way back then as well. So basically... <coughs> What you're saying, Andrew, is because of his, he had this minor quarrel, and then that led the door to basically the English occupation of Ireland. For yeah, that's the reason why I'm in this sort of being able to communicate with you and ask paralysis in English. And, and he didn't really, <laughs> he didn't really need to get involved in the dispute with, with the, the other two kings were involved in. Not really, as far as I can read. No, he just uh, jumps in head first. Uh, thinks that maybe there's a chance of a paragraph here, and again, maybe he was just horny. 
I, mean, I get the impression that a lot of royals and kings were in that time. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then you get poor old Edward II because he isn't, and he's friends with Gaveston, and gets fingers pointed the other way. You can't win, really, can you? No. Um, no, no further questions for me. Brilliant. Okay, we're going to pause for drinks, and then we're going to do what we enjoy doing most on this program when we get back, which is laughing at French people. <laughs> so, things you missed on our break. Poor John made a remark that we seem to be covering quite a lot of mucky subjects on this podcast and carving out a niche for smut. And I was like, dude, you're hanging around with Brits now. It's all about willies and bums, and he pointed out an alcohol. Yeah, I think so. Cool. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go to Alina next, just because after that, I'm, I'm trying to get through the royal ones first. Except let's let's laugh at France for a while because that went down so well last week. Uh, the French laugh at us. It's it's acceptable. It's fine. Alina, who have you gone for as the most incompetent leader of all time? So I've uh, gone for another Louis. <laughs> You'll love it. This is your your go-to whenever you want to find twattery in history. Now you start looking at the Louis, don't you? Yeah. So basically, since that time, you made me do Agincourt. Uh, and argued that within like what you gave me 30 minutes to make up an argument I've decided that from now on this is going to be my challenge so I'm stepping out of my comfort zone of World War II and 20th century history and now literally giving myself 30 minutes which is why I've been quiet for the whole time and I've been sitting here making notes on Louis the 16th so bear with me not a specialist this is like way out of my box and I will probably be making about a thousand mistakes I really don't care, but it's it's basically I think the best thing to, to get out of your comfort zone. Cool. What Louis have you gone for? So I've gone for Louis the Sixteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who don't know who Louis the Sixteenth was, Louis the Sixteenth was the last king of France. Um, you should all know what really happened to him. But let's start from the beginning. He actually wasn't supposed to be king. He was one of seven children, and he was the second son of Louis the Dolphin. Being Dauphin, I think, of France. Do not judge me on my French uh, pronunciation. I can either pronounce Polish or English. Suck it up. He Did you say the Dauphin? Yeah. Is that the word you're looking for? Okay. Poor Did Kate. I say it right? Yeah, uh, I don't know. Kate Jameson's looking slightly horrified um, yeah, because she speaks French as well. Do you know what? I <laughs> Andrew's typing say... it out phonetically in the chat for you to try and save you from yourself. I don't know. Dauphin. Yeah. <laughs> Look, guys, if you can't say Grzegorz Brzezinski, then you can suck it up that I can't say the Dauphin of France. Same so to you. Go. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he becomes king after the death of his grandfather because his dad and his mum die, and it's all quite tragic. Um, as a kid, he was quite shy, he was indecisive, and um, he had loads of people to kind of instruct him to do things um, and instructed him and schooled him to become king. Uh, eventually they basically instructed him not to let people read his mind but apparently according to some historians he was quite smart and intelligent you guys can make that decision up for yourselves well, not when he, he got his head cut 19 off, years yeah. old. <laughs> well apparently he was supposedly he suffered with certain mental health problems and I don't, I don't know you never know what to believe in these days um, but yes, yeah, so he became king when he was 19 in 1774. He succeeds his grandfather, <coughs> Louis XIII, I think it was. I don't know. One of those. Um, see, Alex, you've lost my train of thought now. I had something else. Oh, that was it. That's what I want to say. So he was quite immature, apparently. He was very immature. Those of you who should know, he married Marie Antoinette. 
1770, she was the Archduchess of Austria. We all know her as the woman who, who's associated with the decline in the French moral authority and her courtly extravagance. So all her parties and spending of money and all sorts of things. He ended up supporting the American colonists during the American Revolution, which in theory was a really successful foreign policy. But <laughs> he ended up borrowing way too much. And France was then on the brink of bankruptcy, which ended up bringing about radical reforms in France. This increases bread prices, bad harvests and mass revolts. So basically fucked up. He ended up persuading himself that he is a royal dignity. Therefore, it requires him to avoid communication with his deputies. And he pretty much didn't lay out a program for them to support either. So he was pretty lazy. He lacked political insight, he was too laid back, and he just wouldn't compromise. Instead of doing anything political or giving a shit about his country, he decided to go hunting and play with locks because he was a massive lock fan and he just like <laughs> sat there and twiddled with his locks. Um, to be honest, he should be concentrating more on his own country. He tried to raise the taxes, but that was blocked by the parliaments. They become really angry. He tried to force them. I mean, come on, you're trying to force people here to pass through laws. I mean, he did some really crazy things like exiling members. Okay. And then he even tried to dissolve it at one point. I mean, come on, don't piss off the people that make your laws. You know, like being King 101, hello. Um, he ends up bringing together the Estates General Assembly, which wasn't, I think it was about 100 years before, was the last time it was basically called. It is an assembly of three classes, the clergy, nobility and commoners. So there you go, commoners, you also got a vote there. It was basically advisory body to the king. He basically tried to use them to push through reforms. Obviously, that does not go too well. In 1789, the Parisian mobs start marching on the Palace of Versailles. They try and kill the Queen, obviously, you know, with her lavish necklaces and parties and, you know, the let them eat cake thing. But we can yeah, understand that. It's cake. Exactly. We all like cake, don't we? I'm going to have cake in a minute. So, um, don't know about you. Sorry, you've gone be. completely off your boil now because you're like mmm cake I know I'm thinking of cake I really need to diet more you know I should stop eating all that cake uh, anyway so uh, he ends up moving to Paris so he can be amongst his people um, where he negotiated with the nobles but that all again went tits up tries to escape in 1791 because clearly you know while you're a king you want to escape from your people uh, and abandon them he ends up getting arrested in 1792 they imprison him they strip him of his titles they try him for high treason and crimes against the state. They find him guilty and then chop off his head. So for me, one of the most incompetent kings, thought I'd give it a go. I, th I love your enthusiasm um, and I think you've made a great case. I also think that there's several uh, French historians and French history bods out there screaming at their laptops right now. Um, but well done. Holmes, any questions? Yeah, I mean, one of my favourite stories from the, uh, the French Revolution is that apparently the revolutionaries, they sent a, a number of women revolutionaries to Versailles at one point to try and speak to Marie Antoinette personally. And there was something like 10 of them. And when they got in there, six of them fainted because it was so beautiful, which has always amused me a little bit. I fainted because I was there was no air left after all the Chinese and Japanese tourists stampeding around trying to take pictures because um, there were like 10,000 people in the Hall of Mirrors or whatever it's called. Uh, it wasn't good. It can be quite, but, but 
if we go back to this, but this wasn't the only French Revolution, was it? There were other revolutions. Yes, give me give me a break here. Come on, <laughs> you know I've gone from World War Two to trying to expand my historical knowledge in thirty minutes. I mean, what Holmes is saying is they've got a, a knack and a reputation of being a little bit scrappy and disobedient. Is what you're trying to get across. But well, it still keeps going on though, doesn't it? <laughs> 1830, which isn't that far away from this one. Then you've got another one in 1848. And then I think there was a small technical one after the Second World War as well, wasn't it? On the, on the Fourth Republic now or something. something were like heads that. chopped off. That's the important thing. I imagine <laughs> heads were chopped off in 1830 and 1848 in some way, shape or form. Uh, I know the Empress Eugenie didn't have her head cut off. She ended up living in Farnborough because George V used to go and see her. Mm. So there we go. There was well, at least one head that wasn't chopped off. <laughs> is that the gauge you're using, Alina? Because he had his head chopped off. That makes him more incompetent than everyone else. Yeah, pretty much. Because it was in public. I mean, it was a public execution. So, but wasn't everybody oh, publicly yes. executed at about that time? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Quality entertainment hard. was hard to come by back then. What are you talking <laughs> about? Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you, John. Standing on my side right there. Dyer, any questions? Uh, Coco Chanel kept her head, and she was a collaborator. So, it's, uh, <laughs> it's sometimes it's the roll of the dice. Um, I, it's it's an interesting sort of subset the whole the whole royalty business when you're talking about um, incompetence is is that any number of them seem to be cast into a role to which they are utterly unsuited, and then it's it's really sort of luck of the draw as to how much or how little they fuck everything up to to a greater extent. I mean, I'm just just reading a little bit here when Louis the Fourteenth acceded to the throne in 1774. Sorry, 16th. He was 19th. Yeah, 14th is the one with the anal yeah. fistula. Yeah, I'm, saying, I'm sorry. Bond fixation, Ricky. I apologise, moving on. Um, He was 19 years old, had enormous responsibility as the government was deeply in debt and resentment of the despotic monarchy was on the rise. He was 19. I couldn't get myself to the pub on time when I was 19. The the thought of running a country is is really a bit too much. So I I kind of, I think there's an interesting um, subset for you to think about um, a different podcast on, on, on royalty and how you get cast into it and what happens there. Um, so, yeah, that's yeah. my next book, Johnny. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> a seamless plug, no less. Yes. Um, well, no, thank, right. thank you, Lee. You're right because you're also you're trying to um, you're caught in the middle of several several horrible factions as well who are either trying mm. to manipulate you or just get you off the throne so they can get someone else in. You know, it's I, like I, Nicholas II. He ends up dead, but he's not the most incompetent. So he's pretty incompetent, but he is the wrong man in the wrong country at completely the wrong time there's lots of factors in there that mean he's the one that ends up with it all crashing down around his ears and it's not that he's the most incompetent out of all of them sorry alina i'm like cracking on listen i could have i could have gone for hitler i could have gone for mussolini i could have gone for Mar. i could have gone for anyone from the 20th century right i have a long list and we respect you for trying to do something different exactly so thank you very much Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, we do have one more royal, and it is a spectacularly shit royal as well to come. I want to stay in France just for now, because we haven't got just royals to bring you tonight. So Kate Jameson, naval Kate, unsurprisingly, has something a little different for us. Kate, who have you picked as the most incompetent leader? I'm just going to pause for a second, if that's all right. My neighbour's playing a cornet downstairs, and it's really loud. (laughs) (laughs) That was just in my head. Man, they're really terrible at the cornet. Is it because of clap for the NHS, or...? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. uh... That's that's a bit of an affront to the NHS, what's coming up for your downstairs neighbour there. <laughs> it's like the worst possible timing it could have been. But even if I, I, the windows are shut, I will just add. Oh, mate, this is terrible. He, he, he stroke she is demonstrating a fine set of lungs there. <laughs> yeah, this is worse than me trying to play the violin. Which, uh, around here, we've got uh, PETA protesters uh, talking about torturing animals when I try to do that. So, <laughs> <laughs> And that's in Georgia, where they shoot animals for fun. <laughs> right, right. But, the cor- but uh, Kate's cornet, that's some next-level shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's like, it's not my cornet. It's nothing to do with me. <laughs> Oh, now, now, no, now it's now it's yours. You right, well, it. we have unexpectedly um, worked the most incompetent cornet player in the history of the world into this podcast. Um, my vote, Kate. Who's got your vote for most incompetent leader? Uh, so I'm going with Admiral Villeneuve, who's probably also <laughs> <laughs> fanfare. That's dramatic. <laughs> I think we're at the end now. <laughs> just, that was just like the last hurrah. Johnny, we, Johnny, we haven't heard, heard this player before, have we, at Lavasel in the morning that time? About I, I would say, it's, <laughs> it's, it's possibly a close relative. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, oh, that's oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Admiral Villeneuve. <laughs> Admiral Villeneuve, who also has five names, actually. Um, so I think he also wins the prize for the longest possible name. He was Pierre Charles... <laughs> This is so distracting. Pierre Charles Jean Baptiste Sylvestre de Villeneuve. No, I think. Is that lot? Oh, is that? I think that might be it. That was it. Good. Okay, so Villeneuve. Um, (laughs) So he joined the French Navy in 1779. He was from an aristocratic family. Um, He served under de Grasse in the American Revolutionary War, including the Battle of the Chesapeake. So there's a nice Maryland reference there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, he sort of sympathized with the revolutionaries sort of despite having an aristocratic family so actually he dropped the nobility part of his name and thus survived Um, he was partly excluded from the navy for a couple of years during the terror 
purely because that's just what happened um, to them. But then he subsequently got promoted to Rear Admiral incredibly quickly afterwards, basically for giving up his nobility and, and hanging around in the Navy, really. Um, he fought at the Battle of the Nile in 1798 against Horatio Nelson. He was in command of the rear division. I say fought in a very loose terms. He was in command of the rear division, but his ship didn't actually engage once. Um, and he got quite a lot of criticism about that because he basically said the wind wasn't in his favour, um, which wasn't completely true. God, that uh, old chestnut. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's the wind. Uh, so him and, and it was his ship, the Guillaume Tell and the Genera, that basically didn't engage. Somehow he managed to survive this uh, he got captured by the British in Malta. Napoleon said that he was a lucky man uh, and he actually didn't do too badly. He then got promoted to vice admiral and put in charge of Toulon, which Nelson was then blockading. Uh, and he was basically given that purely because he was of no real threat to anybody's ministerial careers, um, which isn't really a good reason to get a job, but it was kind of a safe, we'll put him out of the way this will be a good thing for him to do, um, kind of gig. Anyway, Napoleon told him that he had to escape the British blockade under Nelson. He had to then go to the Channel and take on the Channel Fleet. Um, and it would basically allow this sort of planned invasion of Britain to take place. Um, unfortunately, he left and the weather was really shit. And he had to go back three days later because he couldn't go anywhere, uh, which was sort of where it all started to go a little bit wrong for him. Um, in March 1805, he was asked to lead the fleet out of Toulon to Brest. Uh, and the plan was basically to protect all the transports of the French army who were going to wage war against us. He didn't really think it would work, but sort of headed off anyway, but then joined up at Cadiz with Admiral Gravina, who he later fought with. His plan was kind of to draw the British away to the West Indies and attack some of our kind of possessions in the Caribbean, I guess. Um, and then go back across the Atlantic, destroy our channel fleet as much as possible and escort the army basically from their camp at Boulogne across to take over, not take over, but invade England essentially. Um, unfortunately, it didn't really work as planned. He stayed in Cadiz for a few hours and then just left without waiting for some of the Spanish ships at all because they weren't <laughs> ready. Um, then he got to Martinique and sort of sat there for 40 days with no real reason and then went back across. Um, and unfortunately, by the time he'd headed back over, I think it was the 25th, 26th of August, something like that, the three French Army Corps basically just decided to march to Germany. Um, and that was kind of where the immediate threat of invasion for Britain ended. Um, I would say that was, obviously that was well before Trafalgar, and Trafalgar kind of finalized it. But anyway, so, at this point, Napoleon's, I guess, faith in Villeneuve is, ra is rapidly declining. Um, and one of the French generals who was serving with Villeneuve actually said basically that he'd given up on this raid on the West Indies and heading back because he was scared that Nelson was chasing him um, because he was a little bit worried after what happened at the Nile. Anyway, he, like I said, he went back across towards Brest. He then fought Robert Calder in what became known as Calder's Action, which was a disaster in itself and not at all a decisive victory for either party, really. Um, and Villeneuve lost a lot of time putting all of his ships together rather than actually trying to take over a victory the next day. 
Um, and Napoleon actually said, I've got it written down here somewhere, that Gravina, who was in charge of the Spanish, was all spirit and decision. If Villeneuve had those qualities, Finisterre would have been a victory, which isn't, isn't a great thing for your boss to be saying about you. <laughs> anyway, um, then you get to sort of October, Villeneuve's being blockaded into Cadiz by us. He received this letter from Napoleon, basically accusing him of complete cowardice. Um, and the plan was to go for the channel, and he didn't because of the weather. Um, and I think Napoleon's letter basically said that he didn't possess the strength of character to command a frigate, and that he was a wretch, and he should be hunted. Um, he had no courage, he had no interest in the Navy, and that he would basically sacrifice anything he could to save his skin. Um, it's not a great, a great thing to, uh, to, to be called, I guess. Um, you're not going to put it on your CV <laughs> quotes, <laughs> are you? On my LinkedIn profile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, he then found out basically that Napoleon was planning to replace him. And I guess it was some kind of vanity project, but he decided, you know what, actually, I'm going to leave Cadiz. And then we have the Battle of Trafalgar, where he famously got absolutely defeated by better prepared, better trained fleet under Nelson. And he kind of knew this was going to happen because he'd written letters previously saying they would beat us even if we were outnumbered three to one, even if we outnumbered them three to one. Um, and it just, it just wasn't working for him. And it turned out obviously that because of a lack of leadership in Cadiz and a lack of supply and a lack of training, they left um, Cadiz, some of the captains didn't want to. They, none of them really followed his orders closely or actually believed in what he was doing. They straggled out of Cadiz really, really slowly, which basically gave us enough warning to know exactly what was going on. Um, and he fought quite well at Trafalgar. He was on the Boussentour, um, but it just didn't... Well, I mean, we all know what happened. Anyway, after Trafalgar, Villeneuve got captured and he was taken as a prisoner to Bishop's Waltham, which is just down the road from me. Um, and then he was released and the kind of idea for what happened when, you, when you'd been taken as a prisoner and then you had to go back, you had to report back. Um, and so he went back to Rennes in 1806 and was waiting to report to whoever it was that was in charge. I can't remember the guy's name. It's some long French name. Um, and he was in this, in this lodgings, I suppose, and he'd written saying that, you know, I want to go back to sea. I want to go back and, and fight and things. And, Subsequently, he died um, by supposedly stabbing himself six times in the lungs and once in the heart. Um, Quite an achievement. Yeah, which is a good, a good <laughs> effort, actually. Oh, Johnny's about to puke like up his salmon and lentils. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was kind of... He wrote a letter, so there's... The, I think officially it got marked as being suicide, but unofficially a lot of people said, well, actually, Napoleon was very, very unhappy with him. Um, he was indecisive. He didn't really have the leadership he needed to be at the position he was in. When you look at him and Nelson side by side and the experience that both of them had in terms of leadership, he just didn't have any. He was lacking completely in confidence. He didn't think he could win, which is not what you want your the guy in charge to be sharing with all of you. And he just sort of, I guess, had this kind of dreadful pessimism and, and foreboding of everything that was going to go wrong even if it wasn't and he was facing Nelson who obviously had all of these qualities that he absolutely lacked um so yeah I guess that's why I'm picking picking him purely for his lack of leadership ability more than more than anything else I suppose 
Holmes, any questions? Yeah, a couple. I mean, when he was taken prisoner and moved back to Bishop's Waltham, um, mm -hmm. he was he was imprisoned in a pub called the Crown Inn, which sounds dreadful to me. It's a really nice pub, actually. <laughs> is it still a pub? It is, yeah. There's a nice plaque on the wall that tells you all about it. It's supposed also, to be it's haunted by French prisoners of war, but I don't know how true that is. Well, apparently there was, there was 200 French prisoners of war stayed in the locality. There, didn't he go to um, Nelson's funeral? Yeah, so there's, um, I'm not sure whether they actually proved it. There were lots of people that said he did, and there were letters from him requesting that he go. But I'm not sure if there was an actual list. I'm not sure whether the list still exists saying who went, but they think that he went, yeah. And then in terms of the actual Battle of Trafalgar, I mean, we covered this briefly a, a few weeks ago, so obviously me and Johnny are experts at this now. <laughs> <laughs> Name uh, one ship that isn't Victory that took part. <laughs> Victory <laughs> 2 was that one. <laughs> um, but wasn't it the case though that you know, the French Navy wasn't in a very good state anyway because of the terror? They'd killed off most of the, the officers, all the ones yeah. they had. So, you know, the fact he was writing letters saying that he thought he was going to lose was probably just a realistic assessment, wasn't it? And not a vindication of his character per se. I mean, yeah, partly. But um, I would, I mean, I would agree with that. But I also think that he knew. Well, I don't know whether it was that he knew that he would lose because he was lacking per se, but I think he was certainly, from all of the accounts of officers that served with him, he was worried about fighting Nelson again, um, which I don't know, to me implies some kind of, I don't want to say cowardice because I don't think anyone that fought in those sorts of battles was a coward by any stretch of the imagination, but he quite clearly didn't want to engage Nelson and he didn't like the idea of Nelson chasing him quite rightly, probably. Um, and so whilst I think the French were struggling and they didn't have their officer corps, and I think by that point their corps of seamen gunners had been disbanded, um, a lot of the sort of squadron level um, command decisions that should have been made by Villeneuve weren't made. And um, wasn't there rumours as well when, when he wasn't quite in the place where he should have been at the right time that he was the victim of a false report? Oh, I don't know. I haven't heard that. I'd like to give you more details, but I'm saving that to yeah. next. <laughs> 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 Dyer, any questions? Um, yes, thank you, Kate. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know, obviously, not knowing a huge amount about the structure of the, the French Navy at that time, as to how responsible he was for the infrastructure, supply and training and, and all of the rest of it. it it's, it's sort of following on from the point that Andrew made was, you know, was it the state that the Navy was in and how much responsibility did he have for changing that? I'm not sure that he would have had a huge responsibility for changing it, but certainly he would have had a means to influence it had he chosen to, I think. Um, there were quite a few officers based at the ports like Brest, Rochefort. Um, Brest comes to mind because I've been looking at it recently, uh, where some of the crews actually mutinied because they didn't have clothes. Their captains hadn't paid for them to have clothes. Um, and then when, you, when it comes down to that, and it's sort of, it's not quite the same with the Royal Navy at the time, or the British Navy at the time, but if you wanted to do more training and you shot, captains that were more well off could buy more powder for their ships and then they'd have, you know, that kind of superiority. But in the French Navy, it was, it was a reasonably similar situation. And there was, like I said, there were stories of people in Quiberon Bay mutinying because they didn't have any clothes because their captains hadn't ordered them any or got them any. Um, and I think probably Villeneuve would have had some say in that purely because he was in charge of all of these captains that were 
making these decisions. Yeah, and that, that sort of actually that kind of almost answers the ne- my next question, which was how was he actually regarded by the men who served under him? I don't think very well. Um, mm. from Brett. The Spanish certainly. I think I can't remember the the, word, the exact words in the account that I read, but basically they didn't trust any of his decisions and Gravinas basically made his own decisions and went, well, actually, I think this is better, so I'm just going to do this um, and sort of ignored everything Villeneuve had actually asked him to do. Uh, so I would assume that carried on down the chain a little bit. Mm. Okay, Grant, thank you. It's going to really suck to be the guy always compared to Nelson, isn't it? You don't want to yeah. be his opposite number. Uh, right, okay, I'm going to do our last Royal now because I love him because we've mentioned him before um, on Down the Pub because the guy is just an absolute twat um, of epic proportions. If ever someone did not belong on a throne based on the gifts that nature had given them. Who is it, John? This time I'm going for Peter III of Russia. He was an emperor of Russia. um, And he is a case study in how many opportunities can you completely fuck up in one lifetime? And it, it turned out, as it turns out, it was a relatively short lifetime. He starts out with a ton of advantages. He's the Duke of Holstein in Germany. He's German. He's, he's not really, he's, he's kind of Russian, but half Russian, half German. Uh, his grandfather was Peter the Great. Uh, his uh, his great, great uh, uncle was King Charles XII of Sweden, who fought Peter the Great. So at one point, the Russians want to put him, put this little kid at this time, on the throne of Finland when they own part of Finland. And the Swedes want to put him on the throne of Sweden. And in 1742, he gets drafted by uh, Empress Elizabeth of Russia to become the heir apparent to the Russian throne. So when the Swedes find out that he's already booked, they move on and, and go to their next choice. Uh, but he was, and, and he was a founder of a cadet branch of the Romanov dynasty. So, uh, you know, he's got all the advantages when you start. Then he gets to about his teenage years. And uh, he's, he, gets, he moves over to St. Petersburg, Elizabeth, the Empress of Russia, is grooming him to be the next emperor. He's not an attractive guy. Um, if you're on, uh, I guess, uh, if you're seeing this on video, then that's kind of what he looks like. Uh, and they're like the portraits video, are completely just, flattering as well, if yeah, that's the re- best they could do. Yeah, and remember, royal artists got paid to make this guy look handsome. So uh, if you're not on him on the vid- watching this episode on video, then just uh, look him up on wherever Google. I'll make it the he, picture when we put the episode out and yeah, just say, kind, people, he, you'll understand why. Yeah, he kind of looks like uh, the love child of a Habsburg uh, prince and uh, Pennywise the Clown from the Stephen King story. So uh, <laughs> lots of makeup, not enough uh, like goth guy liner or anything. So he's not that attractive to begin with. And you can't dog someone by their appearance. When he uh, is betrothed to Catherine, the woman who becomes Catherine the Great, or she was Princess Sophia of, of, uh, from, also from Germany, uh, she was kind of repulsed by him. <clears throat> now, when they get married, he's now the Grand Duke of, of Russia. He's uh, heir to the throne, and he's, one of his jobs as, a, as an heir is to produce another heir to propagate the Romanov line. But he's got really no interest at first in uh, marital relations with Catherine, who's a fairly attractive, uh, actually very attractive. She was uh, vetted 
uh, pretty heavily through the by, by Empress Elizabeth. She was smart, personable, but he didn't have any interest. Um, he was fascinated by the military, particularly the Prussian military. He had kind of a sort of a military fetish thing going on um, and uh, didn't want to have much to do with his wife. He spent a lot of time uh, playing soldiers in their marital apartments. Now, In the bed, uh, I heard, and that she would have to do the cannon noises. You, you, you know, now, okay, no judgment here, Alex. <laughs> if, if somebody wants to play soldier in their marital, uh, you know, enclosures, you know, especially if it's like a weekend or costume night, then I'm not going to judge him for that. But he was talking about toy soldiers, like little, you know, little 54 millimeter lead figures that he would move around. And when he got a little bit older, then those lead figures turned into servants who he'd march around like he was on a Berlin parade ground. So... He's got this fixation on the, the German military, particularly the military led by, in Prussia, which was then run by King Frederick II, who we know as Frederick the Great. So, you know, that's not a bad role model kind of in general, but Peter was sort of obsessed with that. Uh, he also had a pretty poor choice in mistresses. Uh, he, he, had, he, he sort of forgot about Catherine, took up with this, uh, this woman who uh, named Elizabeth uh, Voronsova, she was. Uh, she swore a lot when she uh, uh, talked. She kind of spit through her teeth. She apparently smelled bad. A lot of people had bad things to say about her. Um, so it's it's not a great choice of mistress either. Now, as side note, I'm talking the the Peter the Third of the Catherine the Great memoirs and Robert Massey and these other biographers who are Catherine centric, and I'm kind of focused on that. Um, there is another line of scholarship that says, hey, he wasn't so bad. He had some good ideas, and we'll get to that in a second. Well, 1762, uh, Empress Elizabeth dies, and uh, Peter becomes Peter III of Russia. Now, he had spent a few years before that time kind of pissing off everybody in the Russian court in St. Petersburg, in the army, and once he, uh, once he becomes uh, becomes the emperor, he basically goes from Peter the Third to Peter the Turd really quickly. <laughs> he uh, immediately jumps into a war that Russia had been fighting for a long time. They'd been involved in for about six years or so, five or six years, in the Seven Years' War. Go figure. But there are a lot of other people who are kind of doing that thing too. Um, they were al the Russians were allied with Maria Theresa's Austrian Empire. And King Frederick the Great, and they were fighting Frederick the Great. And so Frederick the Great had done well at first, but by 1762, about the time that Peter is about to accede to the throne, the Russians and the Austrians are kicking ass. They're driving the Prussians back to the Brandenburg uh, limits. Uh, Frederick the Great is, think, is thinking about his reputation, how it's in tatters. He's going to go out fighting like a soldier, like something out of a Tarantino film. And he uh, is, is ready for defeat. And then all of a sudden, Peter takes the, the throne. Peter immediately, again, fa fascinated and fixated on all things Prussian, pulls Russia out of the war, gives back all the land that Russia had shed blood to conquer back to, to uh, Frederick the Great, and basically kisses Frederick's ass so much that Frederick actually wrote to him and said, effectively, dude, you got to cool this down. You're going to get a bullet in your head or you, you just need to like, you know, kind of act a little bit more, you know, less fanboy. 
So, uh, but he, he's not less fanboy. He uh, takes Russia out of the war that they had, had worked so hard to win, a war that all the Russian military wanted to win, and he launches a war against Denmark to recover this little principality and attach it back to his homeland of Holstein, uh, a war that no Russian wanted to get involved in. Well, back then, you didn't piss off the Russian military too often. They were a rough group at times. Uh, Peter had uh, implemented reforms to the army. Uh, he replaced the baggy, characteristic, traditional Russian uh, uniforms with uh, these tight jackets and powdered wigs and, and breeches and stuff like that that the Prussians were using. And he was trying to implement uh, Frederick's linear tactics and basically doing a lot of, you know, shaking things up, which as a ruler, you can't do when you first take the throne off it. Um, so he alienates the diplomatic corps. He alienates the army. Um, he, did, he did try a few things that were, we would consider very, very progressive and laudable. Uh, he declared that uh, he was in favor of religious freedom. He wanted to give the serfs more rights. But remember, all the good intentions don't make shit worth a difference if you don't survive long enough to implement them. Well, probably his worst transgression is pissing off his wife who is eventually going to get the great tagged onto her name as well. Um, he announces that uh, he, he gets, he has a real problem, a heavy, heavy drinking problem. He, so much that he would probably make this group of, of history uh, enthusiasts a little uncomfortable. That's, that's how much he drank. He uh, would get drunk and, and announce plans for uh, arresting his wife or putting her in a monastery he took the uh, coveted order of St. Catherine and had his mistress decorated with it at uh, a big state function, at state dinners. He'd tell his wife to shut up and that she's an idiot in front of other, uh, other diplomats. And the other diplomatic corps in St. Petersburg recognized that Catherine was a pretty sharp uh, person and, and might actually help rein in Peter, uh, but uh, that, that just wasn't really going to happen. So, he takes the throne in January 1762. Six months later, he's about to launch his great war with Denmark that everybody's seething about. And uh, a group of Russian army officers led by Alexei and uh, Grigory Orlov um, decide enough is enough. This guy is the wrong horse to back. And uh, they work with Catherine to orchestrate a coup. They begin to put this coup in motion in St. Petersburg while Peter III is hanging out with his mistress at a palace a little bit west of St. Petersburg. So he's about 25 miles away from his capital. Um, Catherine goes back to the capital. She makes pleas with the local uh, imperial guards, which uh, Peter was going to replace with, with the Holstein regiment. Uh, she goes out and talks to the Russian Orthodox clergy with the Senate. She gets all this mass support in the capital. And, you know, there's, there's rumors of this coup plotting going around, and they actually make it over to Peter's palace, where he's playing his violin. Worse, probably better than I am, in fairness. Uh, better than I can do. Um, somebody gives him a note that says, hey, shit's going on in the Capitol. And he just says, you know, put it on the table. I'll get to it when I'm done with my violin. And he never gets around to taking a look at the letter. So the next thing he knows there's word of mass unrest in the capital. He decides to go back, and then he hears that Catherine is at the head of 12,000 soldiers marching on the road from St. Petersburg. Well, 
he's not the kind of guy with a psyche who's going to be able to handle uh, setbacks like this too well. And he basically uh, starts crying in front of his mistress. He tries to go over to a fort uh, just on, on the Baltic and, and gain entrance. And they told him, nope, uh, Catherine had, had beaten him to that uh, punch too. They told him, no, in the name of Empress Catherine, you can't show up at this fortress, uh, get lost. And so he basically sends Catherine a letter saying, I'm sorry, maybe we can share power. I, I was a bad husband, kind of an Ike and Tina Turner thing at that point, the apology <laughs> phase. And um, she ignores the letter. Then he sends her another one saying, okay, look, tell you what, you can have the throne. Just let me go back and live with my uh, mistress. Well, okay. So at this point, he, uh, Catherine knows that he's, Peter has completely become her bitch. And she's like marching on, ignoring his letter. She's going to do what she wants. But, but understand, she can't let this guy run around because you know, he's going to serve as a rallying figure for anybody who wants to topple her later on, a foreign government or who knows. So uh, she has him arrested, uh, takes him over to a, a fortress, basically lets him hang out there with Alexei Orlov, who doesn't like the guy and knows that as long as he draws breath, Peter draws breath, he's going to be a threat to Catherine. And so they all get drunk one night, they get into an argument, and something happens. It's unclear entirely, but it sounds like he gets strangled or smothered. And uh, that's kind of the end of him. Now, earlier we talked about guys who are so incompetent, they can F things up even after they're dead. Well, <laughs> Peter had, uh, there's like three or four Peters that come back from the grave, like, like Lazarus, the sequel. He, um, the most, most uh, uh, dangerous of them was a peasant who led a revolt. His name was like Emil Pugachev, and he claimed to be the resurrected Tsar Peter. Um, there were a couple of other pretenders to the throne. That kind of thing happened in Eastern Europe, I think. Um, I think there was like a Polish version, maybe at one point of one of the Tsars, Alina. Yeah, we had a false Dimitri a few weeks ago. We were talking about him. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. It, and so uh, basically, you know, he, he manages to keep messing things up even after he's dead. He, he might have had a few good ideas. But again, if you don't, if you're so incompetent that you won't live long enough to put them into practice, then, uh, hey, you, you're just, you're an incomp. Yeah. Amen. Dyer, any questions? If I could unmute myself, then yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, only actually getting yourself on the throne for six months um, shows a, a degree of incompetence, I guess. Um, the th just reading through um, some of the, the stuff on the, on, on the internet, um, the thing that made me laugh most was the fact that in a film he was played by Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who was, you know, your classic chisel-jawed, handsome screen, screen icon. So I, someone was having a bit of a laugh there, I feel. But... Um, it was a fun, it, it was a, a screw up in casting. I think he was probably uh, there to do uh, uh, Potemkin, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> someone, someone ultimately better looking. Um, no, I, no, no further questions. Thank you, thank you, John. Holmes. Yeah, John, you, you mentioned that he was quite progressive, and one of the things you mentioned was that, you know he increased the rights of serfs. But I mean, to be fair, one of them was the right not to be killed by landowners, which seemed to be quite a good thing to outlaw, doesn't it? That, yeah, that's, that's progressive. Back, back then, that was like uh, Green New Deal material. Um, you know, re remember, he, there, there was, I think it was uh, Alexander II 
you know, he, he frees the serfs, but he ends up getting blown up by a grenade a few, a few months later, or a couple of years later, I forget, sometime in the late 1800s. Catherine took over and she had these great ideals, as we see with a lot of, of uh, monarchs, uh, great ideals to reform the system. But then you get in there and you realize the system is there and it's very hard to move. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the first thing, for, like with political parties, the first order of business is making sure your rule is secure. And then second is implementing those things that you would do if you had a secure rule. And then um, the, war with, the war with Denmark you mentioned, what was the issue with that? Because surely even if that war was successful, they would have, you know, increase the range of their territory and the land that they held? Well, kind of. Um, uh, Peter III was the Duke of Holstein, and I forget what other, there, there was a couple of principalities in Schleswig-Holstein. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we hear about Schleswig-Holstein later on, um, but, but the Schleswig part had been kind of lopped off by Denmark, and I forget exactly what they did, but that was what Peter considered his homeland, and one of the reasons it pissed off the, you know, the Semenovsky and, and the uh, Preobrazhensky regiments and all these other, you know, Russian groups in the, in the military is because that was a war to shed Russian blood, basically to get a German guy, part of his, like, childhood. Sorry, I've lost everyone. Yeah, so, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't something that, that most Russians, I think, viewed as benefiting the Russian empire. It was just benefiting... It's the, the vanity Russian. campaign, basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and now also, the, the other issue I have a slight problem understanding is that we're saying he's useless, he only lasted six months. He quite clearly didn't want the job in the first place by the sounds of it. But yeah, it seems a bit harsh that people were concerned that he would be used as a, a figure to rally people because surely he wouldn't want to get involved in it, would he? Yeah, you know, at, at some point, um, I mean, pretty much around then, uh, and, and I don't know if it was a breakdown of the dynastic rules at that point, but, you know, I mean, you see it in kind of the, I guess, Wars of the Roses, maybe English history as well. If you've got kind of a tenuous claim and, and you've got a big enough army, then you can kind of do what, what you need to. Maybe that's how, like, the Tudors, you know, got, got where they got. Um, he would have been a rallying figure um, to if when he was out of power, he was it was sort of like the man in the iron mask kind of thing. You just can't let him, you know, run around. And there was already another former Russian czar, um, uh, Ivan the Third, I think it was, who was in prison at that point, and he had been kept as a nameless prisoner by Empress Elizabeth, and then later by Catherine, with or with guards who had orders to shoot him if anybody tried to spring him loose. So you had to always watch out for watch your back. Very, very much so. Okay, I am so excited about the next one because Jamie's been waiting patiently this whole time to tell us about the most incompetent pirate in history. Yes, so I chose as the most incompetent pirate in at least Atlantic world history, uh, Stead Bonnet. Um, so he is a pirate in the latter half of the Golden Age of Piracy, which lasted between 1650 and the 1730s. And you have to figure, during this time period, you have pirates like Blackbeard, Black Sam Bellamy, Calico Jack Rackham, Anne Bonnie, Mary Reed, like really well-known, successful pirates. And most pirates of the time had experience at sea. They typically came from the lower rungs of society, 
Um, and more often than not, they turn to piracy out of necessity rather than any sort of choice. Um, or if they did choose it, it was a means to a better life, or at least they thought it would be. Um, enter Stead Bonnet, uh, who became known as the Gentleman Pirate, and that's not necessarily a compliment to him. Um, he was born in 1688 to a very wealthy family in Barbados. He inherited his father's 400-acre plantation at the uh, tender age of 16. And ultimately, uh, he married well and had some children. And by all accounts, he was doing very well for himself. He was uh, of sort of middling means. He had money. He had a family. Um, but in the spring of 1717, he decided to throw it all away in a raging midlife crisis. He basically said, fuck all. I hate my nagging wife. My children are bastards. Um, this is the worst possible lifestyle I could ever find myself in. So he prepared to be a pirate captain in the absolute worst way possible. Rather than steal a ship or get a, a privateering commission or be part of a mutiny to steal a ship, he decided he was going to buy a ship. Um, so that's a first for a pirate. <laughs> Uh, and then he paid a crew to join him. So he offered them wages instead of the traditional prey-to-play shares of plunder model. Um, basically, if you're paying people to be there with you, they have no real incentive to attack other ships, right? There's no plunder incentive for them. Uh, he was total shit in terms of ships and sailing. He knew absolutely nothing about either. <laughs> Um, so he spent most of his time in his cabin reading instead of helping the crew, and his crew absolutely detested him. Uh, he made the worst decisions you could possibly make as a pirate. Um, he ordered the first attack that they managed was not against a merchant ship, uh, not against a treasure ship, but rather an attack against a Spanish man of war. Uh, needless to say, his crew and his ship were badly mangled. Um, so he had to spend a significant chunk of change to get his boat fixed. Um, much of his crew abandoned him, so he had to hire a new crew to join him. And uh, word spread about his sort of incompetence, and he unwillingly had to cede control over his ship to Blackbeard, who decided he could manipulate Stead Bonnet to his advantages. Um, so Blackbeard basically held Stead Bonnet prisoner and left some of his men on Stead Bonnet's ship instead and basically ran the whole shebang for a while. Ultimately, Blackbeard decided that Stead Bonnet was so incompetent that they needed to part ways. And once they parted ways, uh, nearly all of his crew abandoned him to join Blackbeard. Uh, ultimately, Blackbeard betrayed him and seized any booty that Bonnet had stolen while working alongside Blackbeard. Uh, so Stead Bonnet was left with absolutely nothing. He had basically a skeleton crew. He had no money. Uh, he had lost basically everything he had worked his life for. And he decided that his background might help him receive a pardon. So he attempted to receive a pardon or clemency but his reputation preceded him, and despite how incompetent he was, they decided that his pirating uh, would continue if he were to be let free. And on December 10th, 1718, he was hanged for piracy. 
Uh, he pirated for less than a year before his execution. <laughs> um, so absolute dick. Yeah. Um, there's not a whole lot on his exploits because of how incompetent he was, and also by nature of the records, pirates didn't typically leave records behind. Um, but by all accounts, he was the worst pirate that you could ever imagine. What happened to the wife and kids? As far as we know, um, it's likely that she remarried, um, but we don't really have much records as to what happened to his his wife and children after he decided to get rid of his plantation <laughs> and pirating. Oh my god. What a Can you imagine your husband comes home and says, Honey, guess what I've decided I'm going to do? I'm leaving you and selling your house and I'm going to be a pirate. Oh yeah, definitely. Worst uh, like crisis decision. <laughs> yeah. Holmes, any questions? Yeah, the crew that he managed to recruit... Were they, were they like normal sailors or were they like proper pirates? Did one of them have a wooden leg, that type of thing? Or? <laughs> they were a mix of what you would consider proper pirates, those who had experience, but by and large, they were just drunkards from the tavern he could get his hands on. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. And then did, did, you mentioned that obviously the first ship he attacked was a Spanish battleship. And then did he manage to get any treasure or booty or it's quite hard to speak about pirates without using terms of seven-year-olds if you're not familiar with them. <laughs> yeah. um he never made the decision to attack proper merchant ships that was all his crew's design uh, like i said they basically detested him and they were more than happy to let him sit in his cabin and read instead of joining in because he was so incompetent and there is nothing in, in the records that would suggest like, I don't know like a kid dying or something happening that would spur this sudden inexplicable descent into lunacy no nope <laughs> decided one day that he was tired of it all and pirating was the best option this is brilliant dire any questions <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like him though he's such he's a fucktard yeah, I, it sort of I, makes makes me glad that my midlife crisis extended to going up, going out and buying yeah. a bicycle. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> don't don't knock it if this podcast thing doesn't work out. That's my next uh, career move. Yeah, just don't don't do what Johnny did and whack you on his first day out. Yeah. Oh dear, um, it's 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 very difficult to know where to begin and indeed end. But it, it's kind of. It, it, it's such a short space of time to to, to not to, to have so little consequence. It's it's just sort of a wonder, given that as you said that there were very few records kept, that anyone actually even remembered him. It it's sort of so that people just didn't go, yeah, whatever, and he, he just didn't disappear from the face of the earth. Yeah, he was just such an anomaly. Like I said, he got the nickname the Gentleman Pirate because people were like, nobody, who does this? Who, who does this? He's just he literally, we remember him because people sat in pubs for years afterwards going, God, did you ever hear about that fucking idiot that owned the plantation <laughs> up the road? <laughs> I was going to say, he probably popped up in all the pirates' Christmas parties or, you know, the naval ones. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. I love it. Right, I'm going to give um, you one all good. quickly before we finish. <clears throat> I bring you Manuel Mariano Melgajero Valencia, the 18th president of Bolivia, 
who ruled from 1864 to 1871. Um, even among Latin American dictators, he is a complete and utter dick. Uh, born in 1820 to a wealthy Spanish Bolivian father and some native woman he picked up that was totally destitute, apparently. Uh, it is said that he was so ugly a baby that his dad just left in disgust um, and his mother gave the baby to an orphanage. Um, so he, he grew up, he joined the army and rose through the ranks as a career officer, somehow, apparently, due to nothing more than his talents as a complete <coughs> brown noser and exploiter of opportunity. Uh, in 1854, he joined a rebellion against the ruling strongman, Manuel Isidoro Belzu. When that failed, he begged for his life, blaming alcohol for his decision to join the coup. Given his reputation as a major alcoholic, the guy pardoned him and went, yeah, okay, right, whatever, fine. Um, this decision comes back to bite him uh, in 1864, when Bolivia faced an internal war between the sitting president and the former president, which is the guy that had pardoned him, Melgarejo rose up against De Asha, overthrew him, and took La Paz. Instead of engaging in diplomacy, he shot and killed the former president with a pistol. And so began the reign of one of Bolivia's most ruthless dictators. God, I've had too much gin. It was said that Melgarejo ruled Bolivia in a state of constant inebriation and excess. He centralised the country's treasury and gave himself full control over it, giving out loans and using his troops as loan sharks. With that money, he spent it on his lavish lifestyle parties and orgies. He ruthlessly terrorised and suppressed the indigenous population, seizing all lands and giving them off to the highest bidder. Among the legends, he was said to have ordered an execution on his shirt, which he performed himself with a pistol. I don't even know what that means. He left the country's treasury dry, even while the country was experiencing a major economic transformation. Silver was resurgent and foreign investors were putting their money into Bolivia. Uh, his foreign policy decisions are infamous. He signed away coastal land back when Bolivia had a coastline to Chile in 1866, and more famously gave Brazil land as well. As the story went, he was impressed by a magnificent white horse and traced the hoof print of the horse on a map of Bolivia and ceded that land to Brazil in exchange for the horse. When the Franco-Prussian War broke out in 1870, he allegedly ordered his generals to defend Paris, though he possibly didn't know where it was on a map. Um, even though it was thousands of miles away and across the Atlantic Ocean, he declared that his troops should take a shortcut through the bushes. <laughs> 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 the British ambassador to Bolivia once insulted him by refusing a drink. So in response, Melgarejo had him drink a whole bowl of liquid chocolate, tied him to a donkey, paraded him across La Paz and then threw him out of the country. In sense, the British ambassador brought these complaints to Queen Victoria, who ordered the Royal Navy to bombard La Paz. However, upon realising that La Paz is inland and high up in the mountains, she instead took out a large map and crossed Bolivia out, declaring it no longer existed. And the British <laughs> pulled out of Bolivia for half a century. In the end, Melcarejo was deposed in 1871 by an army commander. In exile, he was killed in Peru by his former mistress's enraged brother. Uh, admittedly, many of these stories may be made up, but that would be no fun. As far as incompetent leaders go, he should not be forgotten. That's your stunned silence face, isn't it, Dyer? Liking it, liking it. I, giving st giving big chunks of land away for a horse. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> I, I just... <laughs> 
a kingdom for a horse. Isn't it? <laughs> I just like you catch the guy that pardoned you after you begged for your life and said and blamed it on the drink, and he let you live, and you shoot him. That's quite harsh, man. Uh, Alex, it? can you try and say his name again? Because all I can think of is some Bolivian guy. Uh, it is Manuel Mariano Melgarejo Valencia. Yeah, I'm not going to try and remember that. Man, <laughs> do you want to know what he looks like? Let me show on. you his picture. He looks a bit like Alexander III of Russia. Impressive mm. beard. 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 I know. There are a civil war general here. Yeah. <laughs> I will put that picture out for our listeners uh, when we put out Peter the Third so you can see how ugly he was. Yeah, but I love that. He was such an ugly baby that his dad ran away and his mum gave him to an orphanage. Be <laughs> <laughs> one disgusting baby. Are we sure that's a beard and not just the brown from brown nosing? Oh, I'm not sure. You cannot confirm Ouch. or deny. <laughs> It's, um, yeah, no, no further questions. I, it's, you know, th- th- there's a lot to like about him, but um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cl- clearly not, clearly not the sharpest tool in the box. But, but if you're going for uh, consequences, the fact that you got your country crossed off a map by the most powerful nation in the world by being a tosser. <laughs> I, I suspect he was probably fifty yeah. years of no trade with Britain. Because you made the guy drink his own body weight in liquid chocolate and paraded him round on a donkey. It's quite, quite excessive. Holmes? No, nothing for me. I love him. I think he's great. Right, we're going to do what we always do while those two make their minds up as to who's won and what cocktail I need to make up next. Uh, But in the meantime, we will go round the room and we will find out exactly uh, if you couldn't have voted for your most incompetent leader, who would you have voted for? So let's start with James. Ooh, it's actually a tough choice. I've been unmanaring. I think I am going to go with Louis the Sixteenth because, uh, yes, yeah, you and Alina are basically Greece and Cyprus <laughs> in Eurovision now. You just give each other maximum. No, actually, to be fair though, Louis week. the Sixteenth. She forgot to mention the passport story. I think he escaped with his wife, and they got so far, and they were disguised as butlers or something. And they got stopped, they got checked, and his passport basically said Louis the Sixteenth. <laughs> <laughs> and he tried to claim he's this butler. So, um, yeah, and then they recognised yeah, him just... from a coin because the coin had his. Yeah, face that on. was it as well. Yeah. <laughs> what a but nod. yeah, L- Louis the Sixteenth, I think, for me at this point. Why no, Kate? Let's say Spanish Kate. She's not drunk that much, though. I've been watching her sort of. Scotland a bit, probably, ish. Um, I, I don't know. Either, I think, Peter III or um, the Bolivian dude, Manuel, what was his name? You're doing this on purpose, aren't you? Manuel Mariano Melgajero Valencia. Him. Thank you. Let's call him Manuel. We'll just call Manuel. him his first name. Yeah. Ma- Manny to his friends. <laughs> he reminds me of Fawlty Towers, and Fawlty Towers is always funny. This is true. <laughs> Alina, that should Man- be my leading argument. Whatever James did. <laughs> oh, go away. <laughs> Andrew. Uh, I mean, it's got to be the pirate. Like, <laughs> yeah, that is pretty exceptional. Uh, Kate Jameson. Yeah, I'm going with the pirate as well. Yeah, the fact that you didn't even last a year and you bought the ship. Yeah. Surely you could cut your teeth by nicking the ship to start with. John. I got to go with uh, Jamie's Captain uh, Bonnet. Um, 
He, he seems to be uh, some uh, a next level uh, pirate genius. By the by the way, Jamie, is that's not his flag behind you, is it? No, behind me is just a generic. Ah, uh, okay. Flag. I have Blackbeard's in front of me. Did Excellent. he even have enough time to come up with a flag? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, who would you oh, vote yeah, for? You, you mean he just um, liked uh, clip art? Yeah. Maybe between Villeneuve or Valencia. Okay, guys, have you made your mind up? Yeah, it's unanimous as well, isn't it, this week? Yeah, uh, yeah I, th I think we're, uh, we're there. I'll, cool. I'll let you know last week. You can, you can go this week. Well, I think that the difficulty we have with all the royal ones, so Peter the Third, Charles the Second, Louis the Sixteenth. Um, Are you just making up. names up now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> too closely back at those. But I think, to a certain degree, they were just slightly the wrong person at the wrong place at the wrong time. I think Belleneuve was slightly incompetent, but history might be being slightly unfair and victimising him a little bit. And so I think that leaves us with the... Um, with the pirate, with Stead Bonnet, who was properly incompetent and probably quite useless, but he sort of didn't really hurt anyone either the, other than himself as well. So yeah, she swoops, she scores. Well done, Jamie. Yeah, Thank no, you. Wonderful um, and honourable honourable member uh, mentioned to uh, Darman the foreigner chappy because um, yeah, he, that, he was, that was pretty epic. I mean, what do you think went too. through his mind the moment that he turned around and the Normans weren't there because they were invading Waterford? Oh, Shite. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, guys, thanks very much. Uh, join us next week when we will think of something suitably hilarious to discuss for you. Uh, join us over the weekend when we are so Holmes and Dyer, their dreams came true. They got to interview Pete Brown about the history of beer. Probably the longest interview we've ever done because they just couldn't let him go. Uh, but it's great and it's very informative as well. Um, and they end up basically crying into their empty pint glasses at home about what pubs they'd like to go to when lockdown is over. And then on Sunday, join us for a quite a relaxed conversation between self, between myself, Peter Hart, Josh Levine and Gary Bain. So it's another cross pod with Peter Hart's military history. We talked about World War One flyers. Uh, we wanted to talk about aces that aren't as well known. And we also wanted to talk about people who weren't aces who were important as well. So it's just a general chat about aviation in World War One, where we just swap stories uh, and talk about some of the guys that we absolutely love from our research. It's really good fun um, and not quite as manic as the last time those two were on, which you'll be pleased to hear. Don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack for as, as little as one dollar a month all you need to do is go to www.historyhack.podbean.com we'd like to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis but we're poor so we'd appreciate your help there now follows a public service announcement i'm horatia hornblower and i'm archie kennedy the simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders indeed the regulations are very clear in the matter it is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.